Please join me as I read from the Bible. Scripture night comes from the book of Acts. Acts 1, the first three verses. Acts 1, 1 through 3. And the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day when he was taking up, after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, to the, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He had presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Please be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you this evening. I'm very grateful for your presence. It's always a joy for me to be with this fine congregation and to worship with you, sing these beautiful songs. Thank you, Lynn, for selecting these beautiful hymns that we've sung tonight and for these very fine prayers. Thank you, Gail, for the prayer that you've offered. And we're very grateful for the scripture reading tonight, Danny, as it came from Acts chapter 1, 1 through 3. We're very happy to have everyone with us. I hope that you'll be back with us Wednesday evening at 7 as we study the Word of God again and try very hard to understand it and apply it to ourselves as we properly should. As you can see from the notation tonight before you, I'm asking a question about our love for the church and our devotion to the church. And this is a subject that means a lot to me. It's meant a lot to me over the years and more and more it becomes important to me with regard to the teaching of the New Testament about the church of the Lord. I know God loves the church. I know God the Son loves the church. And I know God the Holy Spirit loves the church. But then also I know that I am to have the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. I am to be an imitator of God, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. I am to nurture the Holy Spirit, that is apply it to my life, Romans 8 verse 5 and verse 6. I know they love the church, but I ask the question, how much do I love the church? Do I really think like Christ thinks? Am I really a follower of God as I ought to be? Am I really applying the teaching of the inspired Word of God to my heart like I should? Just how much do I love the church of the Lord? A subject that you and I need to consider very carefully. Let's put it to the test tonight. Let's test ourselves and visit a few passages of Scripture that will help us in this matter of our understanding of the church and help us grow in our love for the church to see its great importance. You've read already, and Danny's read for us, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 3. I'd like to pay particular attention to verse 3 of the passage. With your Bible, turn to that selection. Follow along with me as I read. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's telling, teaching, and instructing the apostles with regard to the kingdom of God. Now, the word thereabout in this English Standard Version comes from the Greek preposition peri. It comes out as an adverb in our English translation. It's a preposition in Greek. Peri or around or about or concerning. King James translated pertaining to the things concerning 
the kingdom of God. Concerning is pretty good translation there for that. Jesus is concerning himself. He's pertaining himself to. He's telling them about the kingdom of God. And that short period of time which he had post-time after the resurrection of Christ, he's explaining to them about the church and giving them special instruction. It becomes his reference point, the peri, the concern pertaining to. Now let's ask ourselves the question, what would that include? If Christ was using the church as his reference point, and as the very point with regard to the matter of um, this instance of teaching and instructing these apostles about that particular matter, what would that include? That would naturally include the establishment of the church. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Now I'll make reference to these particular passages quickly, and I'm sure you're very familiar with them. But if you're not, you may want to mark them in the pages of your Bible. Jesus was preaching, and notice what he came preaching. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preaching about it. He's preaching about the establishment of the kingdom. And this is no doubt about what Jesus was talking about, the peri, the reference point, when he was instructing inspired apostles. If you turn the page, you come to Matthew chapter 5. Then Matthew chapter 5, about verse 3, talks about something of the attitude or the emotion that we should have as children of God in the church. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 5, and the verse is verse 3. To be poor in spirit, to realize that we are guilty and that we're sorry for that guilt before God. That in turn is an attitude of the kingdom which we should have, an humble, contrite type of attitude. An amazing passage takes place in Matthew chapter 11. And I've thought about this many times, and I've made reference to it a number of times in our studies together, verse 11. Now, it's an interesting verse for several reasons. He talks about the great work of John there. Let me read the passage. I'm in Matthew chapter 11, and the verse is verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now the verse that I'm referring to is Matthew 11, verse 11. And he talks about how great uh, John is, John the baptizer. Why he puts him right up there with Abraham. Why there's none greater of all men born of women, there's none greater than John. He puts John right up there with David. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, John died before the establishment of the kingdom. He died before the day of Pentecost, and he was not a part of the church. He died before the church was established on earth, and men and women were being added to the church by way of their obedience to the gospel. We have a closer relationship to Christ because I'm in the church. He's talking about the extraordinary nature of the church. And I can see when Jesus, in those 40 days subsequent to his resurrection, he's spending special time with the apostles. And he's making the church, the kingdom of God, his reference point. And he's talking to them about the kind of emotion and attitude one should have. The establishment of the church. He's helping them see the extraordinary nature of the church. And how very vitally important it is for one to be a part of it. 
Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. And I'm thinking of this particular passage in verse 3. And he talks about entrance into the kingdom of God. Let me read a little bit of the context as the time will allow. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's Matthew 18, 1. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Here's our point. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Well, he's talking about entering the kingdom now, entrance into the kingdom. And no doubt, Jesus, as his kingdom reference point, is trying to instruct those apostles, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, about entrance in the kingdom. The interesting point about this for me is this matter of turn. Sometimes translations will use converted. And the word there really does mean to turn or to make a change. He says, now unless you do that, unless you turn, you'll never enter the kingdom. Unless you turn and become like little children. And he was talking about the humility that little children have and the honesty that little children have. But yet Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gets very specific with the matter of the terms of entrance into the kingdom of God. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and I'm thinking about verse 15. Jesus no doubt taught and instructed the apostles as to what this entrance meant. He just didn't simply say men and women need to enter the kingdom, but he taught us how to enter the kingdom. Mark 1 and 15, he tells us this very important piece of information. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When he begins to talk about the terms of entrance, he's talking about repentance. What a great word repentance is. And what an rep- important word it is. Something that we all need to consider to repent. We cannot take repentance out of the gospel plan of salvation, brethren. Jesus was telling them you must repent. You must change your life from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. And you've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe in the gospel. Mark 1 and verse 15. The facts of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The commands of the gospel. To hear the word of God and to repent of sin. And to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Be cognizant of the promises of the gospel. Forgiveness of sin. An entrance into eternal life with God Almighty. He tells us now... With regard to the kingdom of God, Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. Any man's not fit for the kingdom and put his hands to the plow and then starts looking back. You can't quit in this matter and be pleasing in the sight of God. He no doubt instructed those apostles, you've got to admonish brethren and teach brethren to be faithful and to be dedicated as children of God in the kingdom of God. And then he no doubt would speak to them as he did to that old man Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 5. That wonderful truth about the new birth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He no doubt would instruct his apostles in these specific points with regard to entrance into the kingdom of God. You must change your life. You must repent of sin. You must enter the kingdom by being baptized into Christ by means of the new birth. And how could we forget Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, a passage of Scripture that we all need to take very seriously. I love to talk about the context of Matthew 6 and 33, 
because it really does speak to where we live in the here and the now. All the difficulties that we face, all the challenges that we face, and the problems that we face. He says, don't be filled with worry and anxiety over these particular matters. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But then he says in verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom of God first. That was the central reference point of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. And it should be the focus of our life. If I am to have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 and 5, if I am to be an imitator of God, Ephesians 5 and 1, if I am to nurture the Spirit, that is to accept and teach the teaching of the Spirit into my life, Romans 8, 5, and 6, then I've got to think about the kingdom as Jesus would think about the kingdom. I've got to learn the kingdom like God loved the kingdom. I've got to love the kingdom and be involved in the kingdom like the Holy Spirit taught in the pages of the Bible and the question comes to mind. How much do I love the church of the living God? How much do I love the kingdom of Christ? the focus of Christ, the peri, the reference point of Christ in his discussion with the apostles. How much? Now, I'm kind of weighing that in my mind, and you weigh that in your mind. Now, how much do you love the church? When you sit down and you do your daily budget, your weekly income, I'm going to include the church in that. How much do I include the church in that? Do I give the church whatever's left over if I have anything left over? Or do I predetermine in my heart and mind and purpose, as Paul would use that great word, how much to give and freely give on the first day of the week? It's an indication of how much I love the church. How much do I love the church? God loved the church. The Son loved the church. Holy Spirit loved the church. How much do I love the church when it comes to my regular conversation? Now, we talk about all sorts of things. You know what I love to talk about? I love to talk about football and baseball. I love to talk about the weather. Do I love to talk about the church like I should? Does the church ever enter into my discussion? And do I try to help others see how important the church is in my life. Well, no one wants to be overbearing. Nobody wants someone that is overbearing in this discussion. But can they truly see how important Christ and His church is in your daily walk of life? I'm a Christian, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I don't mind people knowing about that. And when people ask me, I give them an answer because I'm prepared to give them an answer with meekness and with fear regarding the hope that lies within me. In my conversations, I can help people come to see how important the church is. I rather choose to think that that was a, a very common way in which Christians made Christians. There were times when great preachers of the gospel, preachers of truth would stand up before assemblies, but then there were times when people would just speak to others about Christ, speak to others about the church, speak to others about the kingdom of God. How much do I love the kingdom? How much conversation do I spend with regard to the matter? 
What about my attendance to the church of the living God? As the church comes together and assembles itself together, do I assemble myself with the congregation like I should? And you think about all the programs this congregation has, fine programs, fine programs which to help bring us together, try to foster love, fellowship one with the other, helping the community, helping the lost, helping those who are in need, all these particular programs. How do I fit into that? Am I involved in that? Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday morning Bible classes. Just how important is the church? Should I be more involved? Do I need to be doing more? Do I really love the church? Why? Because God loved the church. The Son loves the church. The Holy Spirit loves the church. As I said, it's become more and more an important subject for me as I think about how important the church of the Lord is. And I'm concerned about this. I've gone to uh, listen to preachers preach. I've gone to gospel meetings with preachers. Sometimes the church is never even mentioned in gospel meetings. So many times in our preaching, we never mention about the church or the kingdom of God. And I think we're seeing the effect of that in our own brotherhood, in our failure to show, to teach what the scriptures teach with the importance of the kingdom of God. But the Bible tells us also that we can show our love for the church when we plan for and work toward her growth. Now, if you'll notice in Acts chapter 1, where I'm studying and thinking about these particular matters, God had a plan for the church. Now, the church was established in Acts chapter 2, and we see that wonderful passage there. I always keep in mind when I say the church was established in Acts chapter 2, the church was in the mind of God before the world ever began, Ephesians chapter 3, a point that I should make more often. But men and women were added in obedience to the gospel in Acts chapter 2. The church was established, and the kingdom on earth came about on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ. But he says now in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, I've got a plan for this church. I've got a plan for the church's growth, but you will receive power, referring to the apostles. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus is telling his apostles, God has a plan for the growth of the church. And God wants you to work this plan. Plan your work and work your plan. And so he's saying, we're going to start right here in the city of Jerusalem. And the word of God is going to go out in Jerusalem, and we saw that it did. Acts chapters 1 through 7 are devoted to that point. Then, once we have preached the gospel to Jerusalem, we're going to go north. We're going to go up to Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were part Jews, historically, in their background. Though the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along with each other, there was terrible hatred and animosity between the two. But yet Jesus is saying, we're going to go on up into Samaria. This is our plan. Now once we've saturated Samaria with the Word of God, then we're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, the Word of God's going north into Samaria. And then by Acts chapter 10 on through Acts chapter 28, the Word of God is going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And our hearts thrill at the work of dedicated men who are preaching and carrying the good news to the world, such as the Apostle Paul, 
where it started right there in Jerusalem, then it went on north into Samaria, then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess what? They were successful as you turn to Acts chapter 9. You have a wonderful verse there that talks about the work of the church. So the church, and notice how he puts it here in Acts 9.31, throughout all Judea, that would be Jerusalem, you see, and and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The church was growing and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church was growing. God had a plan for the church. And so when they worked that plan, the church was growing and they were successful. Now you can take a piece of paper tonight and write down on your notes, if you're taking notes, and write two words, one to the left and one to the right. On the left side of that uh, piece of paper, you can write the word build. And then on the left side of that piece of paper, you can write the word bury. Because those are the only two options that we have. Either we will get busy and bond together and build because we love the church of the Lord, or we will bury it. Build it or bury it. Those are our options. A well-organized infrastructure for the body of Christ will help build it. Recognizing the accountability that we have with regard to the body of Christ will help build the church. If we do not get involved in Bible classes, worship service, programs of service designed to teach the gospel to our community and to our friends, we will bury it. If we go about with the idea, well, let George do it. Now, I, didn't, I never knew George, but George is always the guy who gets the responsibility. Let George do that. If we have that attitude and mentality about us, we will bury it. How much do we love the church? God loves it. God the Son loves it. God the Holy Spirit loves it. How much do we love it? If we love it, we will get involved in plans of work where she will grow in faith, in knowledge, and ultimately in number. Let us focus on those particular matters so that we can show our love for the church. But I want to add this third element that I read from the book of Acts as I'm studying from these early moments in church history of the first century. I find in the second chapter of the book of Acts that Peter stands up in defense of the church. If we really love the church, we'll help the church grow. If we really love the church, we will defend the church. Now let's go back and rehearse in our minds, and I'm sure you're very familiar with these particular points, and that is this discussion that happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other languages which they had not studied before. And when these visitors had heard them speaking in their own language, they thought that this was an amazing thing. In fact, they said, this is the mighty works of God, verse 11. But some said, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Verse 13, but others, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. 
And so the church had its critics on the very first day. The church had people who misunderstood, who misapplied, and who criticized the mighty works of God. Now, God had promised this. He had promised the apostles through Christ that they would receive this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. He told the apostles to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. You'll receive power from on high, Luke chapter 24. He told them in Mark 9, 1, he said, there be some of you not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power and that the power would come when the Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 in direct, complete fulfillment of the teaching of God and the teaching of Christ as plainly as it should have been to them. There were some of them there saying, you know what? These guys are drunk. They're speaking in other languages. We don't understand these languages, and they're drunk. That's the thought, the criticism, Acts 2, and the verses, verse 13. But notice what Peter does. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so now he appeals to the Scripture. He says, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And Peter's saying, you misunderstand this. You're criticizing the wrong thing. This is not to be criticized. This is the work of God. And God is fulfilling this particular matter. But from my point at the present, look what Peter did. He defended the church. And notice how Luke emphasizes the point as to how he did it. But Peter. Now the word but there is a means of contrast. It's an interjection. But Peter. Conjunction. Standing with the eleven lifted up his voice. He stood up and he spoke up. Standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Peter could not sit there and let that criticism go unchallenged and unanswered. He stood up and he spoke up and he defended the church of the Lord. You know why? Peter loved the church. He's a man who understood the significance of the church and the importance of the church. Peter understood something of how God loved the church, how the Son loved the church, how the Holy Spirit loved the church. And so he's explaining to them, you got this all wrong. Let me explain to you what the Bible has to say in this matter. And he gives that discussion. And what an inspired sermon that was. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And you and I have spent uh, considerable amounts of time studying that item by item and line by line, understanding the significance of each of the phrases which are used and the words that are employed. Our point for the present is, he defended the church. He couldn't let that go unanswered. Challenges to the church of the Lord will come from two different areas. It's always this way. Either externally or internally. There's that way in the Bible times. It's that way in our time. Sometimes the challenge will come from external voices and concerns. Sometimes it will come from internal voices or concerns. Let's notice an external voice or two that we need to answer. Very prominent in our day and time is the false notion of dispensational premillennialism. It is the view, and watch it now, 
of the church as an afterthought. That the church was to be established, and the kingdom was to be established, and Christ came to establish the kingdom, but the Jews rejected the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus put in the church age when he saw that the Jews were going to reject the kingdom. And that's where we're in now. We're living in the church age, so they say. But the church age was never prophesied in the pages of the Old Testament, they say. It was a type of emergency measure to kind of plug in until Christ comes again and reign on earth for a thousand years and then establish his kingdom. The kingdom was rejected, but he postponed it, and now there's this great gulf or this great expanse of time before he comes again and then establishes his kingdom. But notice what that says about the kingdom. It says that Jesus really didn't know what he was doing. It says that Jesus came to establish the kingdom, but it was rejected. Though Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. Some of you who will not taste of death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapter 9, 1 is what I'm trying to quote. And there in that instance, I think it ought to be marked in your Bible where he's saying the kingdom is coming in this generation, and it did. In fact, the kingdom was in the mind of God before the world ever began. I made that point earlier, didn't I? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and read it from the Scripture. Let's see what the Bible says on the matter. Now here in Ephesians 3, Paul's talking about the Jew and the Gentile being in the church of the Lord. He's talking about the kingdom. As he says these particular matters, he comes to verse 11. What a wonderful chapter this is. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was in his mind, God's mind before the world began, that man would need a Savior, that they, by obedience to the Savior, would be added to his church, both Jew and Gentile. And therefore, you've heard me say many times from this pulpit, It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you'll repent of your sins and confess your faith and be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins, you'll be added to the kingdom of Christ, the church you read about in the pages of the Bible. Everybody can be a part of it. If you give up on your sin, now it's not going to take you if you live in your sin. You've got to repent of the sin, and you've got to be baptized into Christ to be added to the church. It's the only Terms of entrance, you know, Jesus gave the apostles and he gives to us as far as the church is concerned. Jesus is not coming back to earth for a thousand years. The Bible never says Jesus has set foot on this earth again. The Bible says that we're living in the church age, the kingdom age. That the kingdom is the church and the church is the kingdom. The present manifestation of the kingdom of Christ is the church of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 16, 18, and various other passages which you and I have studied. You see, we need to stand up and we need to speak up like Peter did against error like that, which minimizes and denigrates the church that God loves and that Jesus loves and that the Holy Spirit loves. I'll tell you something else. We need to stand up and speak out like Peter did on the day of Pentecost against Calvinism. I believe it is a scourge of our time. The idea that you were born so totally depraved in sin, you can't make a decision for God. That God has got to choose you, and He did before the world began in order to be saved. Some He chose to be lost. It's not that God's got anything against those. He just didn't pick those, is what they say. 
And yet God decided some would be saved and some would be lost. Which makes God a very arbitrary type of God. Though the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. The Bible says that God wants all men everywhere to repent and to be saved. Still, those of this particular elk try to make out the point that you're so depraved in sin, you can't make a choice for God. You've got to have a special illumination of the Holy Spirit to open up your eyes so that you can see what you need to see and obey what you need to obey. You see how this denigrates the church of the Lord? God wants all men to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, not just for the elect, as Calvin would call it, but he died for all men everywhere, that we may repent of sin, confess our faith, Romans 10, 9 and 10, be baptized into Jesus Christ. These are external challenges. If you love the church, you stand up, you speak up. There's a challenge that we face today with regard to denominationalism. Denominationalism is the scourge of our time. Here, this particular view segments the church of the Lord. You can be this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian and modify the word Christian with some kind of title or name, where the Bible is simply telling us all we want to be is Christians. I don't want to be this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian. All I want to be is just a Christian. A Christian that you read from the pages of the New Testament. And for that reason, I do not follow the teaching of men, the creed books, the church manuals, the catechisms, those councils. These do not decide for me what is truth. The truth has been given to me in the pages of the New Testament. And I follow it. It's the guidebook. It's the basis upon which I will be judged. I want Bible authority. For what I say and do, the Bible teaches that I should have that. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Have Bible authority. Denominationalism today is not concerned with Bible authority. They're concerned with doing other things. I'm concerned about doing things God's way. But I said something of internal criticisms and problems. I spent just a brief moment talking about external problems. Church also faces internal problems. If we love the church, we'll defend her. Against what kind of internal problems? I believe one of the internal problems that we face as the people of God is pragmatism. Somebody's always coming up and saying, Well, I read in a church bulletin somewhere where such and such congregation is doing this. Why don't we do this? It's working for them. Why don't we do it? Well, the question is, okay, what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible doesn't say we can do that. Well, then leave it where you found it. If the Bible doesn't authorize it, I'm not interested in it. You see, my standard is not what others do, nor is the standard how large they are. The standard is the Scripture, the Word of God. But there is always a tendency for us to be very pragmatic and to say, well, we can think up some new idea here that's going to work. Let's do it. 
The question is, what does the Bible say about the matter? Another internal problem that we've got to be very careful about, and that's division. We've got to be very careful about dividing the body of Christ ourselves. When Paul talks about the matter in 1 Corinthians, he's not talking about denominationalism really right there. He's talking about the matter of church members dividing up among themselves. Some of you called yourself Cephas, and some of you called yourselves Apollos. And he said, but were you baptized by Paul? Did Paul die for you? And of course, the point of the matter, the point of the question is no. He died for Christ, Christ died for us. And thus we are obedient to Christ in baptism. Church division is something we have got to be very careful about. And how church division often can happen. I got a good idea. And you know why it's a good idea? Because it's my idea. And I'm pushing my idea. And I'm pushing that. And I'm pushing that. And I can push that to the point where I actually divide the body of Christ. We've got to be very careful that we do not divide the body of Christ simply over our own ideas. Now, I'll tell you another interesting point I think we've got to be very careful about. So I study about loving the church tonight and how important it is to God and to Christ and the Holy Spirit. Diversion. That's what I call it. We can get so caught up in diversive kind of activities and programs that we really forget why we're here. They may be pretty good programs here. They may be pretty good programs there. But we can have so many programs that the tail actually begins to wag the dog. And we forget what the purpose of the church is all about. We forget about its establishment. We forget about the emotion that we should have, humble in spirit, the kind of church that we have, what a wonderful, extraordinary church, Matthew eleven eleven, the terms of the entrance of the church and the essentiality of the church. And we have so many fabulous programs, so many wonderful programs. You can be involved in this and you can be involved in that, that the program begins to rule the day. And we soon lose fact, lose face of the fact that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And he came to seek and to save the lost. I'm trying to defend the church, you see, by warning us against diversions. Programs are fine if they benefit the church and they build up the church and they cause us to grow in faith and they cause us to grow in our love for each other and our love for God. But it can get to be so overwhelming and burdensome that the program can get to be more important than the church itself. Remember Luke 4 and 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, Jesus said. I'd like to couple that verse with another verse that you know very well. And that's Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. We can quote it, but I like reading it. Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10. 
Now, in one passage of Luke, he says Jesus came and he said, I must go preaching the kingdom of God. And in another passage, Luke says he came to seek and to save the lost. And when you join the two passages together and you see the preaching of the kingdom of God and the seeking and the saving of the lost, they are inseparable concepts joined together. That's what's going to save us. That's the kind of work that we need to be engaged in. The seeking and the saving of the lost by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what will save this old world. And that's what will save our souls. I can be saved if I am converted to Jesus Christ and added to the one body, the church that Jesus preached. God loves the church. Christ loves the church. The Holy Spirit loves the church. Our question is, how much do I love the church? Have I repented of my sin? Have I been obedient to the gospel of Christ which Jesus preached? Am I living it day by day as I should? If you've never been baptized into Christ, be added to the church tonight. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess your faith, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And I urge you to do it right now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?